Today, my guest is Robin Zucker, CMO, brand and strategy consultant, and marketing advisor. Welcome. Hi. How are you today? I'm great. What day is it? I don't know, but I'm. <laughs> it's beautiful and sunny in mm-hmm. Southern California, so I can't complain. Yeah. No humidity. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, it's usually how the summer goes. For start forgetting about the days. <laughs> um, so you're not from Illinois, right? I am not. No, I was um, I born and raised in New York and ventured to the Midwest to go to school at U of I. So I was definitely unique at the time. So I uh, know a lot more about the Midwest and uh, learned to not say sneakers and start saying <laughs> shoes and whatever New York accent I had, I think was mostly eliminated. So um, how did you decide uh, on U of I and then what compelled you to study communications? Well, um, I knew I wanted to go to a big school that had, you know, great education, um, big sports teams, the whole kind of traditional college experience. Um, and so didn't want, want to stay in New York, uh, wanted to go, I mean, my original vision was to go to California and I eventually got here, but, um, just really liked U of I, um, loved the campus and I tended to do things a little bit differently. I had a lot of friends going to some schools, some people went to schools in the West or other places, just really liked the campus. Um, and I actually started off as an architecture major, um, and so this great architecture program and just, you know, wanted that big traditional college rah-rah experience. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, went to U of I and I didn't realize that there was not a, you know, a, a tremendous amount of out-of-state students. I'm actually went with someone else from my high school. Um, but it was a great experience and I was a lot of people's first New Yorker. So, um, that was fun too. Nice. Nice. And then, so, um, yeah. so I did start off as an architecture major. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I was inspired by architecture and I liked it and I was good in science and math. Um, and so I started down that route and then I realized it just wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. And I, and I always had a passion for advertising. And again, when I, you know, entered U of I, digital didn't exist. So this was really the traditional, really big budget, you know, great, memorable, you know, ad campaigns. Um, and just really liked the creativity of it, but still the business end. Um, and so by my junior year, after doing a lot of research and taking classes and still taking a lot of the classes in architecture, I decided to enter the College of Communications, which is now the College of Media. Um, so just a really great opportunity to, um, you know, learn. In a, and it was, a, it was great because it's such a big school, but it's, you know, College of Communications was, relative, was relatively small at the time. Got it. Got it. And then was there like a professor or class that um, left an impact on you? I think a lot of what left an impact on me, it was a small environment. So it was great. Got to know a lot of my professors. Well, I remember one thing, it was probably with the, um, I think it was called the AAF. It was like the student run like advertising um, Mm -hmm. organization. It was a competition to create a magazine and that had a big impact on me because that was just really that free for all, <clears throat> you know, you kind of learn, you learn different pieces of the advertising communications process, but it was us kind of owning it from the design to the publisher to the theme. And I remember um, doing a magazine on travel, which has been a huge passion of mine. So um, yeah, that was, that had a big impact. A uh, lot of opportunity to work as a group and a team, which is kind of just the nature of the business I've been in for a long time. So it was just a really great experience nice 
And then what was your first move upon graduation? So um, it's funny because so I was a born and bred New Yorker, you know, went to University of Illinois. I totally thought I'd stay in Chicago. <clears throat> and I don't, some reason, I think maybe when I studied abroad in London, I just decided I want to be back in like a big, big, not that Chicago wasn't big, but wanted me to go back to New York. Um, I actually got an internship uh, my, between my junior and senior year that turned into a full-time job. So I was really lucky. Um, totally cold call intern, cold call, cold writing letters internship um, <clears throat> at an agency called NWR, A-Y-E-R. It was the uh, oldest privately owned ad agency at the time. It was 133 years old. Wow. It had clients like AT&T. It coined phrases like um, uh, a diamond is forever. So really big blue chip clients had a summer internship there that turned into um, a full-time offer and job, um, which, you know, although I did have this vision, which my mom shot down, I was like, how about I, you know, work at Club Med for a year upon graduation, and then I'll go have a real job, and she proceeded to ask me for my college, uh, college tuition back. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I worked there out of undergrad, so it's great, I had already had some familiarity and I ended up like in a rotation. So I ended up actually in corporate communication. So it wasn't really what I was looking to do. I got to do a lot of writing, um, but I like sat on the executive floor. So literally one corner was like the CEO, one was the, the chief creative officer, one was like the chief, chief account officer. So, you know, at a pretty young age, I was, you know, hanging out with some serious senior people. So it was, that was really great exposure and just, you know, got a lot of exposure in new business and to how we positioned the agency is we try to win clients. So they have, you guys, I mentioned De Beers Diamonds, AT&T, Burger King, um, Folgers, like, you know, a lot of really big brands, big blue chip brands. So, um, so it, was, it was a good experience. And the thing is when you start out in advertising, I, I do mentor a lot of folks that are coming out of college or in that like start of their career. It's a really great place to start if you're interested in marketing, because you do get a lot of hands-on experience and exposure. And especially today in digital, it's very different. Digital didn't exist, you know, back when I graduated college, but it just gives you a lot of exposure to a lot of different clients. Um, so yeah, so it was a great experience. I worked on accounts like AT&T eventually and Gillette, um, spent a few years there. And then um, I ended up going to a smaller, boutique agency that um, specialized in entertainment. So we had clients like CBS and USA Network and Viacom. So that was good. Definitely, you know, smaller. So I think the benefit of when you move and you're you know, more junior in your career is that if you go to a smaller place, you get more responsibility. Right. Um, and, I, and I really liked it. But I did realize that the agency side is very service driven, which is great experience because I think we all should be service driven, even if we're on the client side or have our own business. But um, I realized I wanted to be more strategic and I also just, I was ready to go back to school um, and wanted to pursue being on the client side. So I decided to apply to get my MBA. Um, and I actually applied to one school on the East Coast, one in the Midwest and one on the West Coast. and. Um, decided to go to UCLA Business School, Anderson, uh, top 10 school at the time, and figured that if I wanted to pursue entertainment, you know, what better place to do it than actually being in LA and yeah, being able to LA. do internships, take classes in the film school. So um, 
that was a great experience both personally, just in terms of relationship building and just really learning. Um, it was a great, and you know, had this vision, as I mentioned earlier, to, to, be, to go to California and I finally made it. So I was mm-hmm. you know, pretty excited. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and then, yeah, like you kind of mentioned, like a lot of your experiences kind of started around this time um, where like the dot-com boom was kind of big. Um, yeah. So like how has your role as a marketer evolved as the internet has? Well, um, I mean, I've been I'm doing the same thing that I studied in college, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. It's just evolved a lot. So um, I think that as digital evolved, so I was at the start really of digital and digital platforms. Um, I, when I graduated business school, I ended up working at Netscape, which um, has also another alum, uh, Mark Andreessen, who uh, you know graduated from U of I. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think it was just it was wild west, essentially. So it was always taking what you knew. I got hired, for instance, by Netscape because I had an advertising background to figure out how do we monetize our traffic. So that's at the beginning of like, ad serving technologies, things I didn't even know then. So for me, it was always like, it was always that same kind of direction, but it's like, it was always a different role and a different function. So what's happened is digital marketing, which is where I really grew up, grew up. I spent my formative years at Digital First Company. So both in terms of using digital as a platform and being adaptable were really critical. But um, I'd say that everything's gotten a lot more sophisticated. So, you know, when you started doing digital marketing, you know, we didn't have all the measurement and all the tracking and all the automation that we have today. There weren't all these different platforms. There wasn't the sophistication. There wasn't the competition. So, um, but I think the same principles are always there. So I think, you know, it's just understanding what you know now and knowing that there's no set and forget it and that things are going to keep evolving, especially, you know, the platforms change, the consumers change. So, you know, always being one step ahead, I think was always important and not like sitting kind of in that world of status quo um, and being adaptable and flexible and so forth. So, you know, a lot with, a lot of what's changed is when I graduated, I was doing partnerships that were a little bit more traditional, still digitally based. We started doing direct response email. We started doing affiliate marketing and then that became paid search where I ended up eventually working at um, Overture, which was a, it was acquired by Yahoo's paid search company. So a lot of what's changed is just the the ways to communicate to the consumer. Um, and we used to really have to sell in digital at the time when I was there. So even as a marketer, I was using digital as a platform. Um, but now it's not, uh, it's it's a digital first. It's not a digital, you know, afterthought. Um, so yeah, lots changed in terms of, you know, how people consume media and just the fragmentation of media as well. Got it, got it. Um, and yeah, you, you mentioned that the motive behind um, going to UCLA was it kind of helped you get a foot into the entertainment industry. So what made you decide to start your own digital TV platform from scratch? And then um, was it because you were so interested in entertainment or was there like a specific target market that you were trying to reach? No, I mean, the, my path to getting there, I mean, we can go through that, but, um, you know, I had been, I mean, I spent 10 years, was it Netscape? So kind of Netscape, I helped them build a multi-million dollar advertising business. So mm-hmm. Netscape at the time, 
for those, I mean, hopefully everybody knows about it. It's a U of I alum, um, but, and we were eventually acquired by AOL. Everybody remembers that company. But um, it was, we had this browser, we kind of owned the browser and had all this traffic, so we figured out how to monetize it. And then I went to AOL, did a startup, but I eventually ended up a, at Yahoo, where I spent 10 years. We can go back to that. But um, so I hadn't, I'd been, had always been peripherally entertainment, meaning like I did things that were, like entertaining it wasn't traditional entertainment it wasn't like theatrical or television um and i had just um was leading marketing at playboy and uh had an opportunity it was actually through a recruiter so i didn't actually start the company but i was tapped um to help lead and really launch this digital television brand called rivet tv which was audience powered television for me, I felt like I'd always been on the peripheral of it. It was three years ago, so it was before. I mean, now there is just an overwhelming amount of entertainment and content and so much competition. It was at a really interesting point um, in terms of like launching something like we did. So for me, I felt like I wanted to kind of live and breathe it and be in it. And actually, our offices were on the Jim Henson lot. So if you guys are all familiar with the Muppets, um, so we actually were in... Our, our, our office was in the barn, which is literally like the prop shop for the Muppets. And um, it, actually, the studio was originally Charlie Chaplin's studio. So it's kind of fun. It had a lot of history um, behind it. But it was really an opportunity to build from the ground up. Um, you know, obviously competing with traditional entertainment, but how do you build this you know, digital-first platform? Mm -hmm. And so what was really interesting about it and what really intrigued me is at the time... When I joined, when I looked at the TV landscape, you know, Netflix was there, Hulu was just really ramping up, Amazon was ramping up. I mean, there's so many other entrants now, um, but it was all kind of similar. There was like 200 essentially white men in Hollywood making all the decisions, and I'm, I'm maybe exaggerating a bit, but it was just, there wasn't the diversity in the population reflected in the people making the decisions on, around what entertainment was produced. Um, and the goal of River TV was really to democratize entertainment. So what we, what the vision was, we were going to partner with really well-known creators that had a following that could be in a niche, could be a demographic niche, it could be a certain type of entertainment, and really enable the audience to greenlight the television. So basically, audience-powered TV by voting with their with their wallets. So when we looked at it and looked at the landscape and said, how could we fit in? This is really kind of curated, kind of bespoke content where in the mix you might have all this other content, but this is something you could be really involved in. And I don't mean it be involved in it like where they're going to tell us the next scene, but you could decide how this TV gets made and, you know, and, and who makes it. Um, so to me it was really compelling because I looked at it and said, wow, no one's doing that. There is this need. I feel like the, the audience, the consumer in general is more and more in control. I mean, the consumer has a voice. If you look at everything going on in the world today, the consumer has a voice. They can vote with their wallet. They can vote with their voice. There's social platforms. So it's like, why not get them involved in this? And when you think about it in the mix of all the entertainment companies, there was a vision that like, oh, this could be a really good, more likely an acquisition over time than a standalone. But you know, the, the, the cost of producing content is so expensive. If there's a way that you know it's going to work and have some of it basically paid for in advance, by the consumer, that could be really compelling. So I came in, um, they started building the product, but it was really then saying, when you think about marketing and what does a marketer do, I mean, it changes every day, but it was like, it was the whole kind of end-to-end -end marketing cycle. So it was everything from like, what are we? So, you know, naming us, so it didn't have a name. 
Um, so Ribbit TV came from a whole meeting exercise, and part of Ribbit was um, riveting content. And, or, you know, Ribbit, you build, and someone's building the content. We thought, like, it was important to have TV in the name because we were a new brand, and Starbucks started with Starbucks Coffee. Apple started Apple Computers. So it was everything from that, like, very kind of foundational brand element to kind of building out kind of the positioning of the brand. Because we had to go not just to the consumer. We also had to go to Hollywood. We had to go to meet with all the kind of senior talent agencies and other folks and really sell in what we're doing and why it made sense. Um, as well as build out the data infrastructure. So a lot of this, because we were going to grow the audience, leverage audience, leverage um, leverage the consumer, was really data-driven. So we built out a whole data warehouse so that it wasn't like we were catching up after. How did we kind of make sure we were collecting all the right data at the right time? Mm -hmm. And it was everything from building the teams, so everything. And for me, like, again, what I've been really blessed with, I think because I've gone down this path of kind of uncharted territory, kind of going into digital and going into things that haven't been done, is you know i'm always learning so it's building out the kind of the video content team building out the content team building out the marketing team building out customer service building out all these different functions Got so it. it's pretty exciting um, mm -hmm. as well as putting the framework together um, around which creators we worked with so we actually launched um so we rolled out one pilot at a time so the users got to watch a pilot and decide if they wanted to fund the show or not um so we worked with somebody named kevin smith um, a lot of people know him. He's, you know, started in the '90s. Um, movie, famous movie called Clerks. He's, you know, huge into Comic Con. He's um, basically the IMB ambassador at Comic Con. Has a huge following. So we actually launched the show at Comic Con in Hall H, which for folks that are hot Comic Con geeks know that you know it's, we had seven thousand of our closest friends there to screen the pilot. Um, so really, it had great response. Um, we launched our first pilot, so we were very timely. We, the show was called Hollyweed. Um, so it took place comedy in a dispensary, so definitely tying into not only leveraging Kevin and his huge following, um, both in terms of he's a huge podcast network, huge social following, but he authentically had a group of fans that wanted to support him. Um, but also we were tapping into a topic that's quite timely. So we launched a really great reception and success but um you know one thing i've learned over the years is like change is constant <laughs> whether i'm acquired you know from netscape to aol or overture to yahoo um we ran into funding issues um so unfortunately we didn't get it as far as we'd like it to but you know we built this whole infrastructure you know over the course of the year and a half that i was at that company um you know which was great definitely learned a lot so i could definitely say throughout my career keep learning and that's what i keep looking for you know I don't think I've ever been bored or complacent so I think there's you know things are just constantly changing which is you know, I think definitely I'm never going to be bored mm -hmm. yeah no that's great um yeah I'm actually really curious um because at Rivet um you have to take over a lot of um the marketing responsibility um and then at Yahoo which is a much larger corporation um there's a lot more marketers that are working with you and yeah. you have your own team. So um, I'm kind of curious to, to see like what kind of like differentiates working at a startup versus working at a larger corporation in, in the context of marketing. Yeah, well, I spent 10 years at Yahoo. So I definitely as a marketer, I mean, I came in, you know, at a director, you know, kind of senior manager, director level, which mm -hmm. is pretty senior for a tech company. So I'd already had all my Netscape experience. I had some really good foundation 
it was post-business school. Um, I think the benefit of a big company is you've got this big brand. So definitely right. it worked for a lot of big brands. That's really nice. It opens a lot of doors. You have budgets. They're sometimes not massive. I mean, sometimes, you know, especially tech budgets don't tend to be necessarily like, you know, consumer packaged goods tend to be, you know, crazy big. But, um, you know, I think when you work at a bigger company, and especially in the tech space, you can really chart your own path. And so I stayed at Yahoo for 10 years, which people look at me like I was crazy. No one stays at a job for 10 years, much less a tech company. I kept growing. I kept learning. I kept having new opportunities. So first of all, it was the people, right? So I worked at a really large company, especially being the tech company. Everybody was super smart and driven. So between Netscape and Yahoo, I have like an extensive network of just great people. And it doesn't always mean like, oh, you're going to get me the next job. But it's like, oh, I need to do research. Oh, I need to do this. I need to mm -hmm. bounce an idea. It's a really great network. So I always, I like the people that surrounded me, which I think is always really important, right? So you can work for the best company, but if, if you're miserable and hated and don't feel like you're supported by whether it's your your peers or your boss, it's really challenging. So that's um, that's one thing. I kept learning because it was at this, like really the start of digital marketing, um, I started doing something called, you know, kind of really co-marketing partnerships. Um, there's focused on small businesses. So with companies like, you know, American Express and Pitney Bowes, and that evolved then to be more of a direct marketer. So we started doing paid search and, you know, all the kind of ROI driven marketing. Then it led to kind of more retention and lifestyle marketing. So kind of like the notion of lifetime value and really understanding, you know, the deep dive on digital and um, translating value. Um, I really got that at Yahoo and kind of spending my formative years there. So I think when you're at a bigger company, when you get to that point of like, oh, I've already done this or, you know, you don't have to leave. So like I might have left Yahoo years earlier if there weren't, you know, continued opportunities and continued ev evolution. The company grew, things changed, platforms changed. So I spent um, actually around seven years on the B2B side, which means marketing to marketers, both to small businesses and large advertisers. So it's really great exposure. It's a different type of marketing. It's not, and, and, this, and at the start, you know, I was at this company called Overture, which was paid, the original page search that Google actually copied and did a much better job, but the, that was the original paid search. And um, so we're marketing to small businesses. So kind of really, that's where a lot of my foundation was built, but then I eventually moved to, you know, more traditional sales marketing and eventually ended up running social marketing at the start of it. So think about that. I've had all this. I've got, you know, a really wide variety of experience. So really, you know, fortunate from that perspective because you might have to move around 10 different companies to get the experience that I had. Um, and at the time, and this is where I think you're at a big company, I think the thing to remember in general, whether it's a big company or small company, you, I think when you're younger, you're like, oh, someone's just going to single me out because I'm so awesome and I'm working so hard. You really have to chart your own path. Mm -hmm. um, and I think curiosity for me, you know, I, I don't think I realized as graduating college, the world is very different, but I definitely would look for like understanding what's next. You know, I was in the middle of this digital evolution. So, you know, as somebody marketing advertising products, Facebook had just kind of come, graduated college essentially because it you know, had only been originally available to college, um, to university students. And so I started looking at it because obviously it was competitive as an ad product and realized like, wow, we're kind of doing social at Yahoo, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of organization around it. We had a new CEO, a new CMO. 
there's really big focus on a really big um, $100 million brand campaign um, that we were launching at Advertising Week, which is a big industry conference in New York every year um, for advertisers, for our clients. And we were going to do a big presentation around our consumer campaign. And so I was looking at it strategically and I was like, wow, this is really a great time for us to start, you know, launching really our B2B social strategy. Um, because ultimately, you know, we want to fish where the fish are, right? So everybody was starting to social media in general, whether it was Facebook or Twitter or YouTube were really ramping up. So this was about kind of meeting, especially when you think about people making decisions, media planners tend to skew a little bit younger, was fish where the fish are um, and make sure that we're front and center with thought leadership on social media. So launching a Facebook page, a Twitter handle, which, you know, is so kind of standard these days and even though yahoo is an endemic company wasn't something we had organized around um and so i went in to present to the cmo but in doing so presented like a look at the yahoo social strategy at the time and so again remember when all these new things come out and this was very early this is um, this is probably nine years ago you know there's not there's not a way it's been done before so sometimes the organizations aren't caught up to where it should be Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, even though it's a B2B audience, which is one of the big things that have shifted, especially now I'm doing some work in the B2B space, it used to be if you're marketing to somebody as a business person for a business thing, it was like this very separate world. And just as we were talking before we got on, like LinkedIn is definitely a place to be professionally, but sometimes Instagram could be really relevant as well. So ultimately, all these advertisers that were spending billions of dollars with Yahoo, there are people too, they were consuming Yahoo as a consumer. And so we needed to make sure we had a social strategy that aligned with that as well. And in going in and presenting my B2B strategy, which was really thought out and laid out, I just was doing, putting in context, say, hey, here's what Yahoo's doing on social. And what I found was it was all over, place and all over the place and across the board very different, which I think was very standard for companies like in the early like 2009, 2010-er, because it was so new, right? So people started Facebook pages, Twitter handles, there was dozens, there was hundreds. So from that meeting with the CMO, it was clear from our discussion that it was like, wow, we really need to figure this out and organize it. We can't treat it like every other marketing channel. It's definitely different. And it doesn't just sit in marketing. It sits in product. It sits in sales. It's endemic, especially as a digital company. Right. right. Um, so really identified that opportunity. And through that, um, she's like, do you want to figure this out? You know, like we need to take what we've known from the past um, in terms of data and measurement and branding and apply it here. This isn't just like, oh, let's get a lot of fans and followers and call it a day. So, you know, for me, a little bit of my curiosity um, and just kind of like doing that analysis ended up, you know, really shifting my career from the perspective of going from being kind of B2B at a consumer company to being front and center with the consumer and really being on the leading edge of like what's next and really um and that that's just become a little bit of i think kind of who i am right now for my dna is like what is that next thing so when we talked about going to rivet tv to me it was very natural to do that um you know to go and and go to something that's completely unchartered and undefined um and figure out if success can happen from that so yeah so that that yeah. kept me at yahoo for another three years because kept learning so really in that role um, built a team from the ground up but then also and we were like a centralized team so definitely when you work at a company you learn how to what's called manage the matrix which means you don't just sit there and get stuff done you know startup might be a little bit different so you'd really need to work across the organization so i sat in the marketing group but i didn't sit on it i was a i was a horizontal versus a vertical 
So I'd partner with people on, you know, sports to do something around, you know, March Madness or, you know, um, the entertainment movies group to do a summer movie program or finance to do something, you know, around taxes or news to do something around elections. Um, we also worked globally. So I created a center of excellence, worked globally, um, worked across the product teams as well, because given that we're a digital company, there's opportunities to integrate Facebook and others in at the product level. Um, so it's great. It was a great experience and, um, I learned a lot and, uh, had a lot of fun. Yeah. Nice. It sounds like it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned that when you were at Yahoo, a lot of your work kind of revolved around opening up these new marketing channels. Um, how would you, I guess, describe Yahoo's marketing vision today versus how it was maybe 10 years ago? Because the company has gone through a lot of changes and yeah. their, their, their entire <laughs> vision has changed. Yeah. 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 So I guess, how, how do you view it? Um, well, I think, you know, at the time, Yahoo had a lot of struggle. Um, you know, it, it's been around for over 20 years. It was, you know, really early in the internet and super successful. And, you know, one of the companies was like, when I joined Yahoo, it was like one of the, just when I was at AOL, it was like the hottest place to be. So I think a lesson learned in general is like, and it's still amazing. There's still a billion people that visit Yahoo a month. I think the challenge that Yahoo faced um, when I was there and kind of growing up there for those 10 years was that technology was very different. So like kind of at the start when I was there, like every business was almost like on a different tech platform and it wasn't mobile first because mobile wasn't first. That changed a lot. So the world has kind of really changed in general in terms of how products and everything operate. I think where Yahoo really struggled was were we a tech company or a media company, right? Were we the pipes that were just getting like the content out there or we actually a media company? And that's, I think, one of the, the things that we really struggled with we were in a lot of different businesses. So we, you know, we were in every business possible, but then you'd be like, what's Yahoo? When you look at in comparison to a Google, which really first and foremost, and maybe they've evolved, they've definitely evolved a bit, but they were a search company. Or you think about Apple, like it's very simple. So I think it just became right. really hard to navigate and manage it. And so a lot of the focus, especially kind of my last few years, was like starting to re trying to reach a younger audience. So, you know, Yahoo grew up and grew because of Yahoo Mail. So that's like a really right. sticky application. Right. People come back every day. There were different verticals that were like standalone. So if you think about like wanting to refine the company, Yahoo Finance, you know, professionals use it. It's, you know, it could stand alone with its own brand. Mm -hmm. Yahoo Sports had some of the best writers. Yahoo News was great. So there were these different groups within Yahoo that like kind of stood on their own and there's just a lot of other stuff. And so I think we always struggled with that and whether we should be more product centric, more content centric. So, you know, we, I mean, look, we had developed great content. There was all these different things. And so a lot of when I was at Yahoo it was just kind of keeping that audience, that engagement up, seeing if we can grow the audience. We did a lot of programs around, you know, trying to reach millennials. We did something called Yahoo on the road, which was a really intensive 30 day cross country tour of, um, like literally stopping in like, let's say 20 cities with, you know, variety of, we were getting doing free concerts with everybody from like, you know, Macklemore to fallout boy to John legend, um, really to start trying to reach that younger audience. So the challenge Yahoo faced was that they had this core audience from Yahoo Mail that was coming every day. So our homepage had millions and millions and billions of views. 
but then we had a lot of just what we'd call kind of travelers, tourists, like they weren't like sticky, like people stuck to sports and finance, but a lot of our traffic was not really kind of the super engaged traffic. And so we're trying to figure out how to evolve that. And obviously there was an acquisition attempt by Microsoft. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, my first five years worked for the same guy who I still keep in touch with. And then my next five years, I think I've lost track of who all my bosses were. So I was definitely very good at kind of explaining who I was, what I does, what I do, what I do, especially on the social front, because it's definitely my last three years there, there was a lot of change. So I think um, today what's different is Yahoo is acquired by Verizon. And so it's less of the Yahoo brand and it's more of how does it fit into their whole ecosystem. So actually, ironically, Netscape got acquired by AOL. AOL got acquired by Verizon and then eventually Yahoo got acquired by Verizon. And actually the, the CEO of Verizon now is a Verizon Media is actually a former Yahoo colleague. So I think they're doing great. They've got a lot of traffic. They have um, quality content. And so for them, I think it's keeping their audience engaged. Um, and then, you know, where it matters, really building out kind of high profile. So it's less of building it as a brand, I think, that stands alone, but more of how they really build on kind of their key verticals is where they're focused. And I think it's different once you get to that tipping point of, you know, you look at companies today like Google and Facebook and Instagram, you know, and, and Snap, it's like, everyone's a darling today or even TikTok, but you don't know in like five years if they're still gonna matter. I mean, if you look back at getting back to that notion of big brands, Kodak doesn't exist, or I guess they maybe mm -hmm. do need to be printing. Um, you know, everybody at the height, probably too young for most of your audience, but MySpace was like the darling. There's so many things that would you ever thought they didn't exist. I mean, especially, you know, a lot of the big financial firms that yeah. went away in 2008. So, there's no set it and forget it. And um, I think any company, whether they're, you know, a hundred year old brand, you know, or, you know, a two year old brand, there's no set and forget it. You need to write your history every day. Mm -hmm. The the landscape changes. You can enter the market, you know, as a startup, you can come up with, I mean, something and it could go, it could go viral. Probably not going to happen, but you, you don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot less restrictions or barriers to entry. Which is what made really interest interest um, was really interesting to go from Yahoo. I've been digital my entire career, so I was digital first, big brands, but digital first, to really kind of an unusual step, which was next in my path was going to Playboy. So um, yeah, the, yeah, that's 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 a really interesting <laughs> transition, um, going from a big tech company to going to a large social entity. So could you talk a little bit more about just like that unconventional transition into, uh, into yeah. Playboy? Yeah. Um, again, recruiter reached out to me and that's like the benefit definitely as you guys grow your careers, LinkedIn is really important to show what you're doing. And I, and actually this didn't even come through LinkedIn, but LinkedIn is important, but um, actually a coworker of mine. So it's the other thing is you know, recruiters reach out to different people and a coworker of mine, like, what's your email address? And he's like, he's kind of a funny guy. So I get this job description for Playboy, which I had always respected, you know, just was not, you know, in 2013, 2014, top of my mind. Because mm -hmm. um, they, you know, just wasn't in my, my world. And I actually thought he was joking at first. And then I read this job description and it just really fascinated me because as a marketer, you know, it, everybody knows Playboy. Um, and for good and bad, you know, I think there's a challenge to being a known brand where you have a 60 year old legacy. And this is what really gets to speaking to writing your history every day. <clears throat> and how can you take a brand that's 60 years old and, and 
evolve it and reposition it to be relevant for a younger audience, millennial audience, which was the flavor of the day. Um, so I thought it was fascinating because it's, it's up there with, you know, the best brands in the world. Um, and so I went in to talk to the president and the CEO. And so done my research ahead of time. So first of all, their offices were in Beverly Hills, beautiful. I mean, the nicest office I'd ever been in my life. Just, you know, you definitely get in there. Like, it's what you think of as a Playboy brand when you think mm. of mid-century modern and just that whole lifestyle. But, you know, before you go in, so advice, obviously, before you go and do an interview, you do your research. So, you know, went on their socials and they were just curated lifestyle and their app was fine. Um, and then I went to their play, their website and I was like, wow, this feels like it's a pickup truck on cinder blocks par parked in front of the Playboy Mansion. Because there was like, it just, the design of it was very different. There was like different levels of nudity, which, you know, all the other stuff was lifestyle. Nudity was always part of the brand and mm -hmm. part of the DNA. Right. But not, you know, not all of it. It just, it just seemed off. So I go in to meet with the president and CEO and we're talking and I was like, so tell me like, what's up with like the website? You know, it's so different. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, we took the company private four years ago and, um, the company that we had licensed, they had also gotten into Playboy TV, which I'll get into, but they had licensed the website to a company that um, they also licensed Playboy TV to, which is a, which was adult content, paid, paid um, cable channel um, to basically sell, you know, subscriptions to paid photos of nude women. And I was like, oh, wow, I know that you guys know this is two different brands in your mind, but to the consumer, there's like a big disconnect, which means to the advertiser, there's a bigger disconnect. So it just, it didn't make sense. And I think, when you look at it, I think there's a challenge in the 90s for a lot of brands, um, a lot of publishing brands, but especially one like Playboy that even though Playboy always had more than the magazine um, for years, it's a huge, huge, huge licensing business. Um, but, you know, in the 90s, it was like, what do you do? You have this website and then, oh, you have this way to have digital content. So Christy Hefner, um, Hef's daughter at the time, steered it, I think, in a direction that, you know, in hindsight, probably wasn't perfect in terms of being a little bit more kind of on the adult end of things. And so when they took the company private, um, they decided that they just didn't want to play there. They kept the magazine. The magazine's a flagship of the brand. But, you know, Playboy TV and you know, these other things didn't make sense. But at the end of the day, the consumer, it's Playboy, right? You know, like whether it's Playboy on your cable and there's nudity or Playboy, you know, on your website and it's safe for work, it's all the same brand. So, but in the process, the new CEO... Scott decided that, you know, they want to pay, they want to pay us millions of dollars a year to license our website. We'll do it. And there was there was brand controls, they weren't really implemented. So he realized it and so part of them looking for to fill the role that I ended up filling and in, in really being the first digital first hire, digital forward hire was like can we should we become a media property? We have a licensing business we need to support kind of our digital assets today are not working as hard as they can and in some ways just detracting from the brand. Um, and we looked at companies like Vice, which at the time, and again, this is how things evolve. I mean, Vice has been incredibly successful as a media company. And at the time they really had a, a tech valuation. So, you know, we were all salivating at that saying, wow, we're Playboy, we've got this legacy, this history, you know, we can find our place to fit in. We're not a vice, but there's, a, you know, there's always been an edginess and always been a very kind of, um, you know, kind of socially conscious first um, kind of open-minded perspective. So they had 
retained the rights to their social footprint, which at the time was maybe 10 or 11 million fans and followers. Um, so that was really the foundation to build upon. And then they had some other digital assets and things like that. So I came on board to first make the case to the board of Playboy that like, oh, we should forgo millions of dollars a year and that there's actually a business here for us. We can actually build it with audience in terms of what we already have in, in our control. And it would actually be relevant to somebody that might be, you know, 25 to 35 would actually kind of engage in the brand. So a little intimidating at first, just from the perspective of like, wow, it's not that it's so much it was Playboy that it's like, wow, I didn't even realize that it was so complicated. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, you know, the first for me was I never thought I'd be presenting to the board of Playboys. That was really fun. And a, a funny story on that front. So I go through, I, we, we decided, okay, we're going to do this. So we, before we presented to the board, we took a few months and we just started testing. So again, one thing throughout my career, and especially now that digital is, is integral to everything, if you want to make your case or influence somebody, it's like, how do you leverage data, right? I can say I have a great idea. Great. It, and it might be, but then how do you prove it? Whether it's like, what are the trends? You know, what data can you use to, to, to support that? And so we just started testing kind of like the direction of the content we want to take, more lifestyle content, um, more editorial content on our social to see, oh, would it drive engagement? Could it drive traffic? And it did. And we had really great success. Um, and we also did, we did hire some third-party partners to go out and help do research. So great. Our audience on social was younger. They were engaging. We were driving traffic. But we also wanted to talk to, you know, the target demographics. So we did some focus groups with millennial men. And they're all like, well, totally get the brand, totally get kind of the heritage of the brand, what it has stood for. But like I live, half them lived at home with their parents. I don't really need a magazine that has nudity in it. I don't read magazines anyway. And if I want nudity, it's every place it's ubiquitous mm -hmm. um but if there's the right thing sure why not and did you know research with advertisers we did we did do like our, our homework so we could walk into the board and say look here's data from what we already have in our assets and here is what the market's telling us um and also like we've got this really massive licensing business that we're not really doing a great job of supporting so when the you know, we, we had a partnership with Cody Fragrances. We had something called Playboy Fragrance and distributed at places like Walmart. So you think about like the merchandising manager at Walmart making the decision on whether or not Playboy Fragrances should be on an end cap. So he used to go and Google Playboy and then like the metadata would be something that like, you know, a third grade boy might write. You know, it just was like so off brand. Mm -hmm. So it was really important as we wanted to grow our business and really relaunch licensing in the US. So it made the case everybody was you know it was fascinating you know like okay got it and then i remember one of the board members asking the question um should we take nudity out of the magazine and i'm just sitting there and i'm like oh you're asking me <laughs> i was like okay that's a that's an interesting question and i was like you know right now no because everything we had to do digitally we had to remove nudity it had to become what we like to call safe for work which i know is funny to say playboy and safe for work but um it, it just was you know we 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 knew to get to become a media property and to be listed on Comscore as entertainment and not adult. We couldn't have nudity, and ultimately, advertisers don't want any association to nudity. And so, we knew we needed to remove it. And the magazine, which was kind of, you know, the wasn't a money maker at the time, but you know, obviously, a key part of the brand. I was like, wow, um, I'd say no, not right now, but like, let's see how digital goes, and then 
better understand, but like there's no reason to kind of completely turn the world over. Let's see how this digital experiment goes. Got it, and got the it. digital experiment went really well. So I was first kind of digital hire, ran marketing. We built that editorial, but in a really short period of time. So built the whole team, you know, from really from the ground up. But um, but in a really short period of time, we um, we grew the audience. So we had five million users when we took the site over. Uh, we um, we grew the audience four x to twenty one million. Um, getting a younger age was really critical. The average age went from 47 to 31. A third of our users came back every day and we doubled digital revenues in the first year. So awesome. making these changes was, you know, significant. Um, and so we really repositioned and turned the brand around. Um, and then it was great. And we had, you know, I mean, really a lot of growth, but there were still some advertisers that wouldn't budge. And so when you think about, you know, when do you see a magazine, especially today, there's not many magazine stands left, but, you know, you walk to the airport and there's always magazines and, you know, the Playboy magazine was still wrapped in black cellophane, which is not really a great, you know, a great marketing vehicle. If anything, it's like, why is it wrapped in black? Right, and so, because right. again, it was the same thing that we ran into when there was Playboy TV and Playboy that was corporate, you know, the Playboy Enterprises is like, to the consumer, to the advertiser, it's the same thing. So even though I was like, we're safe for work, you know, this is all, you know, we had to work with Google to get delisted from all the kind of bad things and why we couldn't show up in certain places. It was really quite an undertaking to kind of, you know, unravel what had been done. But, um, you know, to them, it's like, no, Playboy is nudity. I don't care that your, your digital doesn't. So we got to that point where we're like, you know what, the magazine costs a lot of money. The people that actually buy it, and by buy it, it was like 90% subscription, were not that key target audience we were building on digital that was really our future. So did more research, you know, talked to advertisers, talked to consumers, made the case to the board. Now remember, the Playboy is privately owned. Heff had sold the company, um, still lived in the mansion. So that was like, there was all these, you know, creative ways that, you know, worked for everybody. So he lived in the mansion until when he passed away, we were able to sell the mansion. Um, but we had to still, you know, get Hef's blessing. I mean, essentially to remove nudity from the magazine, um, which was obviously really radical. Cause when you think about Playboy, I think it's a big association, but we really wanted to look at the magazine as, you know, more of like our flagship, like kind of a marketing vehicle almost. It was still editorial, but more of like it represents the brand. Right, right. And you can see a lot of companies like Airbnb has a magazine and Red Bull has a magazine. Like a lot of brands have these quarterly magazines and it just it was a tremendous amount of money. So we made the case. Um, so it was really exciting because we removed nudity, redesigned it. So again, it was just a little bit more modern. Shifted the editorial a bit, got rid of some of the like older types of features. Um, and relaunch. So, you know, the announcement made the front page of the New York Times. It was a huge deal. I mean, you think about, you take a time machine, you know, back to the future, and you said to somebody in 1980, like, oh, yeah, Playboy, Playboy doesn't have nudity. And, um, you know, a lot of other things have changed, too, that, uh, you know, just are radical. So um, a lot of success there. Um, but again, same thing where it's like, use the data, shift the position. And also just, I think the, the lesson there, especially as you think about writing your history every day, is like you can't just rest on like your laurels and be like, this is how we've done it. You know, if mm -hmm. you want to exist, right. like 
Playboy would not have made any of those changes if their back wasn't up against the wall. So I think it's, sometimes it's harder to make those changes before you're really saying, okay, if we, we have a choice. We can do this or we cannot do this, but might as well take the chance and do it. Right, right. Um, and we did, and it was, it was really it was successful. It was exciting. Nice. Um, what was like the biggest indicator for you that um, like maybe that the excess nudity um, was leading to the popularity of the brand decreasing? Um, was it like the research groups? Um, was it the fact that, you know, the, the magazines were covered um, in black, like well, at I an mean, airport? Magazines like... And there's, yeah, there's a few things. I mean, I think just in general, I mean, as somebody that used to remember, I told you like one of the, my, the, the, my biggest memories from undergrad was like creating this magazine. Like I loved magazines. Like, mm -hmm. Love the content. You know, I had, I don't know, 10 magazines delivered a month, but like, who needs that anymore? Because I have, like, my phone is everything. Right, my phone right. is a Swiss Army knife and it has everything. And so I think that just, just readership in general, and, and, you know, obviously there's a, there's a famous quote, you know, I read it for the articles on Playboy, which is actually true. I mean, like Fahrenheit 451, uh, lots of other books and movies came from the, from the pages of Playboy. Mon Hef started it. It was really about how do you how do you become a better man? How are you smarter and more interesting? You know, how are you the most interesting man in the world? You know, to, to, to borrow Dozecki's. Um, so I think there was just like the trend in magazines going down. And, um, you know, if you want nudity, everybody knows that it's out there. And I think part of when you look at the average age, now again, it's average being so high and the people were willing to pay for a subscription, a digital subscription to nudity was like, Oh, they must not know it's free because it's free. Right. I mean, obviously there's other things you can pay for. So it just, it was talking to kind of the millennial, the younger set. Um, it just, we couldn't play in the digital world. If we had nudity, Google didn't like it. You know, Google wouldn't like, you know, we wouldn't, we, our SEO was horrible. It really took us a long time to bounce back from that. If we wanted to be on Facebook, I mean, Twitter had some like, Twitter wasn't super restrictive, but Facebook, I mean, I, you know, it's, I had some really funny conversations with my partners at Facebook because we'd even get flagged sometimes just because we were Playboy and it could be, it would not even be like anything close to nudity and then GQ would have something else. So it was just like, it just wasn't part of like the cultural DNA. It wasn't that anything wrong with, with nudity. It just wasn't, it just wasn't needed. Got it. Um, so kind of, and just, if you looked at the time, it was, not that there was anything wrong with it, but it was just like, wasn't needed. And it was actually a detractor from the articles. So when we relaunched digital from an editorial perspective, it was lifestyle, it was entertainment, it was food. It was, um, there was still like, you know, a female aspect to it. There was travel, there was cars, there was all these different elements of it. Um, as well as just like what's happening in the, the daily cultural DNA. So if there's something that was trending, you know, we captured as well. Um, and that would be a key driver is traffic, but it was also like, what's our perspective on it? <laughs> so yeah, it just wasn't, and especially, you know, with the, with the digital part, it was easy because we basically, if we wanted to have a media property, first of all, we couldn't get listed in Comscore where we needed to be to get per to get, you know, advertisers buying and we couldn't really take advantage of the digital platforms out there. So, um, but then it became a disconnect. And so, um, so we made the decision across the board. Got it. Got it. Um, yeah. And you mentioned that um, part of your homework, um, as, as you put it, uh, was going out and actually talking to uh, millennials and seeing what their preferences are and um, kind of doing your own customer discovery on that. Um, so 
what is kind of the market research shown in preferences between different generations? Um, and now um, with Gen Z con- being the main consumer of, of a lot of media online, like how, how, how is that different than how you cater to millennials? Well, I, I will just speak to, first of all, being part of um, Gen X, but um, like we're kind of nobody, everyone ignores us for some reason <laughs> at this stage in life. We have a lot more money, but that's that being said. So millennials were, they're pretty much digital natives, but it was everybody kind of growing up digital. And so it was very different audience in terms of reaching them. I think Gen Z is a little bit more self-aware, um, a little bit more concerned. So Gen Z is like, you guys probably are just on the edge. Maybe it's like 22 and under. It might be a little bit older, but that's that'd be the, the older Gen Z. But these kids are, t- you know, totally digitally native. But they care about the brands. They care about who they partner with, right? So, if you, you know, if you don't give your employees benefits or if you don't recycle, you know, they care. They care mm-hmm. about how you, how you act um, as part of society is really important, and. It's also a little bit of Gen Me, so a lot of personalization is happening. So if you think about it, you can personalize your Vans and your Nikes, like that self-expression, don't get me wrong, there's still a very big obsession with Gucci and other things. I have younger Gen Zs and I, you know, they went to middle school and all of a sudden they're like, we need Gucci. I'm like, no, sorry. <laughs> but, um, but it's, so yeah, so there's a little bit of like that kind of identity, but there's a lot of customization. So, you know, my kids have made like customized Converse or whatever else it is, everybody wants their individual identity. And I do think, you know, you look at Greta Thornburg, you know, Gen Z and like what some of really folks in this younger generation are doing is like things that I couldn't do when I was that age. Cause like the platforms didn't exist. So I think there's a maturity of the platforms and a, a different kind of awareness of that demographic that like they do care about what's happening in society. And so it's going to change who they do business with, how they do business. Um, and even their ability to start businesses. I think I mentioned that recently I spoke at an event, well, recently, <laughs> like five days before the world was shut down, I spoke at um, an event that was like 400 women, um, kind of really entrepreneurs. So YouTubers, TikTokers, like everybody trying to figure out how to create their brand. So it could be anything from a beauty blogger, you know, anything in those categories. And so really talk to them about like, brands and perspectives but you know I went to the conference for the two days that was happening and I was just really impressed with you know a group of 21 year old 22 year old maybe 25 year old women and they had an idea they found a way to get something manufactured or they created a website and they were able to build a business you know relatively easy and they had something that either people wanted to buy or wanted to hear and they were able to create a substantial you know relatively substantial business for someone in their 20s which didn't exist, you know, it wouldn't exist without the internet. And so I just think it presents a lot of different opportunities for people um, and how they approach their lives. Um, and Gen Z is, you know, kind of a driving force behind that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Gen Z being um, large and consuming all this media and all, all this access to information um, kind of presents another problem, which is um, the fact that uh, there's there are these... Uh, targeting targeted marketing initiatives from these large media firms who um are are trying to utilize personal data to push like different products so um i was kind of wondering what your take is on like the uh the ethics on maybe like this like 
really, really targeted marketing. It's interesting. I was just listening this morning to the hearings that are happening in Washington, um, you know, with Mark Zuckerberg and, mm-hmm. and all those others. And, you know, I'm definitely, I grew up tech and I'm, you know, I, I, there's, it just was fascinating because you also have like most of the folks that are asking the questions don't really even understand the internet. But um, yeah, it's, 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 I think it's at this really critical turning point, um, and it, I think it's a hard thing because I think a lot of these companies don't view themselves. There's two sides to it. There's like, what do they allow on their platform? So, you know, Twitter has taken a pretty hard stand at taking down misinformation. Facebook, not so much, even in terms of what advertising they allow. Uh, you know, I think that I don't mind targeting. I think it's effective. I think there's a layer of it that can happen that is a little bit disturbing, um, I'm not sure how they roll that back. I mean, so as an advertiser, I've definitely taken advantage of different types of targeting, not to the level that like with the campaign and everything during the last election happened. So I think, look, this is a relatively new industry, right? Like it's still just over 20 years old. And even you talked about like, how did it change? Like when I started and I was doing digital marketing, the sophistication of data wasn't there. And now like you have everything on everybody. I mean, I could have a conversation about somebody and then all of a sudden there's like an ad popping up, you know, like, I'm right. like wait, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. So I think there is, I, I, I think that it's really the companies need to take on responsibility. And I think it's happening. You know, I think, look, Facebook had some of their workers go on a virtual strike. Um, advertisers are not spending, I mean, there's, it's not just the targeting. It's also, I think a lot of the political stuff, but advertisers are not spending money. So I think we're at that turning point. I think there's a balance. I think that, you know, targeted media is better, but there's a little bit of creepiness at the mm-hmm. level of info that people know. So it's that balance. And I think as a marketer, especially if you're in control of the media budget, it's really understanding that, but those are the good, there's the good actors and then there's the bad actors. And I think the challenge is. How do you control the bad actors, especially when you you know look at what happened in the last election and the ability to you know have you know a fair amount of inaccurate um, information out there? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. That's it's really interesting because, like, if you kind of look at the progression of the internet over the last like twenty or thirty years, um, like at first it was all about um, sharing information and equal access, and now it's kind of turned into um, companies realizing and larger corporations realizing that they have um, even more access to um, people's data than, than they think they had like before. Um, so it's, I kind of almost see it as like the Wild West uh, like or, or like a rendition of the Wild West. So it's kind of interesting to see. Well, it's been the Wild West for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really has. But yeah, I think it's so, there's so much power with computing, you know, with data and artificial intelligence. I've gotten to a point, like the way I feel is if I write something, if I instant message, if I text, anything I put down in writing that's not on a piece of paper, and even if it's not a piece of paper, someone can take a picture of it, it could get out there. So as you think about sharing messages, saying things, but even on this, these hearings today, you know, there's some emails out there. They're probably a little bit misconstrued, but there's still stuff in writing. So there's just, yeah, I felt like there's no privacy anymore, unfortunately. Um, but I just think it's when, you know, people manipulate. I mean, even Target, I mean, there's a story a few years ago and it wasn't even digital. It was direct marketing. Like there's certain trends they can look at. They know what you purchase. And so I think it was a 17 year old girl bought a few things. Maybe it was like some cocoa butter 
some cocoa butter lotion that you use for stretch marks when you get pregnant, like just, just or, you know, prenatal vitamins, whatever it might have been. And she got a direct mail piece from Target that was like, you know, hey, start stocking up on diapers. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. her dad freaked out. Yeah, yeah, I remember like, that story. Target. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, I, it's we live in this world, and it's interesting, um, just with, you know, it's everything that's happening. My husband, I had read 1984 in high school. I, I never remembered it, but like, I, for some reason, my husband never read it. He just reread it, and he's like, we're living it. I'm like, <laughs> So I think you just need to be aware of it. I mean, there's a lot of positives. I think there's, you know, I think that's where when you talk, when you hear Mark Zuckerberg speak, I mean, there's a lot of positives around sharing and so forth, but there's there are a lot of negatives. It's a balance, and I think especially for me, having kids that are just getting started on social media, um, you know, and, you know, I'm pretty attuned to it, you know, compared to my peers because I kind of professionally really grew up a lot doing social and digital and I might not use it exactly the same way as someone that's like 21 but I understand the platforms and so you know it's it's a it's a it's an amazing place and it's also a really scary place I think both as a consumer and um, especially as a marketer it's it's trying to find that balance Mm -hmm, definitely um Uh, the one thing I want to add around Gen Z Mm -hmm, go um, for it which I think is exciting so you know, we've obviously, we have this pandemic, we've had, you know, a lot of just racial kind of issues and tensions happening. Um, what's exciting about Gen Z is it's more diverse. So it's, it's 51% of the breakdown. It's first of all, it's the largest, it's the largest generation, the largest kind of group right now. And it's 51% that's non-white. And so I think when you think about diversity and you have more people representing, that's why when I talked about Rita TV, it was really important that it wasn't just like this one type, whether it's all women, all men, all this, like mm-hmm. there's a variety of voices. Yeah, most definitely. There's a variety of people in the world. And so I think the notion of diversity inclusion, I think it gets thrown around a lot, but the more exposure you get, um, to different types of people, the more you understand. I mean, I think a lot of the challenges in this country, while we are a very diverse country, you know, people kind of live in their pockets of sameness. And so if, if you don't have that exposure, you don't know. And I think having this generation that really feels like, you know, they have a voice and having kind of role models in that generation that are using that voice in a positive way and that exposure, hopefully, you know, over time, both from a marketing perspective are important considerations, but just a societal perspective. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and yeah, speaking of voices, um, I mean, you spent a lot of your career um, in LA and um, in the Valley. Um, has there been um, a specific celebrity that's like maybe said something to you or left an impact on you that you that you you remember? Left an impact. I have a funny story. I don't yeah. Know if left an impact. Yeah, on me, for but, sure. Um, so I had just started so yeah i mean definitely it's, it's funny because before i moved to la before i lived in california i was like it was just this you know it just was this really exciting place and it still is but yeah there's you see celebrities a lot they're just every place you know or you'll sit next to somebody and be like oh how do i know you? i'm like oh you're on tv mm-hmm. um, so this is kind of a funny one but uh so i had just left yahoo and i was a playboy and i got into the elevator and we had done um a licensing partnership with Pitbull. So I'm in the elevator with the head of licensing and Pitbull and he's introducing me and he's like, oh, Robin just joined us from Yahoo. And Yahoo, just as I was leaving, we did their logo and Pitbull was like, um, 
you know, I don't like the new Yahoo logo. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I thought it was just like kind of fascinating because yeah. I think what I want my, my, what I walked away with, which I think we all know is that like all these celebrities are brands unto themselves. Um, and it just was fascinating that he was so keyed into it. So I just was to me just a little bit of an interesting, like, wow, that was great. I'll give them that feedback. <laughs> I don't disagree, but uh, okay. That's funny. Um, yeah, and then um, one of the last questions I want to ask you actually is, um, what were some twists or unexpected obstacles in your journey that almost kind of shaped or changed your perspective on, on your work? Oh, everything? <laughs> I think it's like for me, there's never been a status quo. Maybe like out of like I maybe out of undergrad, I was working in a big ad agency, and it was just that was life. But I think, you know, when I decided to go to business school and graduated, and you know, worked at Netscape, which was just you know, it was really a technology and a software company, and we evolved into a media company because we had all this traffic. Um, I think what I've learned over time is just there's no set it and forget it, and just you know, some of these opportunities, some things sometimes it seem like they're not good, that like, oh, that's not great, become good and present opportunities. So I think it's every, and every, and you forget, you know, after a while you forget things that happen, but like I said, every role I've been in, you know, there's always a challenge. And I think it's really taught me how to like, you know, think on my feet. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's, it's trying to be ahead of it, trying to understand it, trying to collaborate. Um, and then like, look ahead to what's next, but also not get so caught up in like what the next thing is, like make sure it's right for you. Right. But, you know, right. Just always be thinking about it. Um, Cause you know, I think that's where some of these companies struggle. And I, and I, and I think that, you know, if companies could be nimble enough, um, they can keep evolving it. And that gets back to like, you know, working at a big company like Yahoo, I think the challenge with these big companies is that, and I think Google's done it well, where they always had this group of experimentation. They always had like they always give engineers and others like a percentage of their time to always think about what's next. So you really have to build that into your corporate DNA and really become a learning company because every company has to keep evolving. Yep. yep. And the difference of being at smaller companies, so post Playboy, I've been at you know as a startup for a couple of years. A well-funded startup, so I was actually able to build out with decent resources and do research. But, you know, it's still not an established company. So, like, and I look back at my success, and I've been fortunate that I've had a lot of impact, but I've never, I've never had, like, a layup. I've never, like, just gone into this role that's cushy. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe other people have. I don't know. But it's just, you, you have to keep working at it, um, you know, to, to make it work. But, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, yeah, definitely lots of turns and twists. And, I mean, ultimately, I'm doing the same thing it's just the world's very different it's still communicating with people it's just engaging with people I think the biggest difference is when I started it was one way and now it's not even two way it's like multiple way right you could say something to someone else and someone else says to someone else and it becomes this you know this thing so it's it's a really as a as a consumer as a parent as a marketer it's it's a really different world um, and there's great opportunities but you know it's there's a lot of things to be mindful of as we go forward yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, and then my last question to you would be, um, if you were to give advice to um, some some undergrad at, at U of I or at any, at any school um, who is interested in going into marketing or a similar role that um, you, you've been in or a path that you've gone down, um, what, would you, what would you tell them? 
Uh, well, I think definitely, you know, um, I would try to get real world experience, even if that real world experience is doing administrative things in that environment. I think practical work experience in, well, I wouldn't even say in an office today because those don't exist, but like, you know, what can you start to learn? What classes can you take? But also can you get that real world experience is really important. I think mm -hmm. also to get hired because when you're entry level, it's like, well, what are you bringing? But I think that's really good to get that exposure. Look, Stardust, I was just, um, I was just mentoring somebody that had just graduated and, you know, who's actually you know, had a job lined up at an ad agency in New York and it fell through and he's, you know, he's do internships, don't get paid. Like think about like, what can you do now to really right. hone your skill and have practical experience? Um, but then, you know, if you, if you're not getting that, maybe start a small website, maybe you start something small and then you at least understand the dynamic of social media or of driving traffic. I mean, there's there's all these tools out there that you use as a marketer that like everybody has access to. So starting to understand them is really important. Um, I think be curious. So like if you're into this area, like understand like what's going on and what works. Um, ask questions, figure things out. I don't have all the answers. I mean, I think I'm always like looking for like understanding things and like, look, you can just type something into a search engine if you don't know it. And generally, you know, between three blog posts and a YouTube article, you can figure it out. Um, but I think as you, you know, I think look at the kind of businesses you want to be in, um, be open-minded because even like for me, I, you know, I wanted to do entertainment, I think at a very young age and I didn't really do it like traditional entertainment until Rivet TV, which is just a few years ago. And I was kind of over it by then. I mean, it's great and I love entertainment and I live in the, I mean, I'm literally like a mile from the Hollywood sign. But, you know, for me, I think it got the communication aspect, like the tech aspect became more interesting um, over time. But I think the key thing is like, who are you working with? So as you kind of work, you're building your network. And I don't mean like that sleazy, like, oh, you know, here's my business card network. It's just you're kind of building your professional friends and your professional kind of entry points. So surround yourself with people that are smart, that you can learn from and that are good people. Mm -hmm. and people are not, you know, there's bad actors every place. So, you know, definitely you have to pay your dues, but you know, you want to be around people and, and try to find mentors, you know, who can give you that advice, like who's been through it before. I mean, you know, and has that perspective um, and follow people. I think the one thing, if I had to do it again, is if you work with people and they're great and they give you an opportunity, I think you should take it. Um, I've had, I've haven't followed people that I should have, unfortunately, but I've had quite a few people that have worked for me multiple times. And once you build that relationship, it's a relationship and it's, it's very different than, you know, kind of more of a, a transactional relationship you might have with a boss. Or mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So, that's great advice. Yeah. Just be, and just be prepared for change. And at the end of the day, like, you you decide like what you're make make of it and I, i'll just give a quick example before we um wrap up but when i was at yahoo as i mentioned there's quite a bit of change and our the first new ceo like i don't know the, the first ceo in the line of four left carol bartz and then we had this gentleman join us for five months but he lied on his resume so don't lie on your resume <laughs> He said he got a computer science degree. This is where it's like the drama of Yahoo um, from an from a company uh, from sorry from a, a college that at the time he graduated didn't have a, a, a computer science degree. That being said, there was just like period of like crazy reorg, and I'd been through many reorgs at Yahoo, 
and I was generally involved in the discussion. But for some reason, they decided they were just going to cut like 90% of my team. And I was like, and eventually I rehired it, which made no sense. But I just remember being like, all right, well, I wish they cut me. And, I, and at the end of the day, I didn't because I was still there. And I was like, well, what do I want to learn? Mm-hmm. You know, what do I want to do? What haven't we done? So, like, I pushed the team. Like, we hadn't done much on Twitter. We had done some things there. And, like, you know what? I really want to get involved in the IAB. We had access to the Internet Advertising Bureau. We were members. So I, you know, got involved in the, like, their social media strategy committee committee and I got an award from doing that. So it's kind of like, even if you're in a situation, this is one thing because everybody, you know, I think especially millennials and Gen Z get very like, I should rule the world right now and want to leave or, you know, are sensitive to like the ways of the business world. It's just like, what are you getting out of it? Are you continuing to learn? So for me, you know, things happen I don't like. How do you make them happen into what you do like? Um, you know, especially if you're a bigger company or a smaller company, like what do you want to get out of it? What's going to help you? What can you give to the company? But ultimately, can you keep learning and growing so that you know when you walk away from this experience, you know you walk away with something more. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, I, I like flexibility that. Flexibility is key. Yeah, like that, and just constantly being uh, intellectually curious. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but yeah, that that concludes our interview. Thank you so much for your time, Robin. Anytime.